invite you to turn within your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12, verse 43 is where we're picking up this morning. Exodus chapter 12, verse 43. I'm going to read right through to chapter 13, verse 16 this morning. We're going to be looking at three. Uh, these are kind of summary statements by Moses, uh, different rituals that were going to be integral to the life of the Jews. It seems kind of odd for us as uh, Western readers to hear uh, the storyline being broken up into so many pieces but as a, a listener to these elements, um, as a Jewish listener, you would be impressed with the significance of these rituals that have come directly out of their own story. And so I'm taking time to consider them this morning. Exodus chapter 12, verse 43 says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every slave that is, brought, that is bought for money shall eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded of Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people out of Israel, the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. And the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast is mine. And then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and no leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep the service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day... There shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be kept in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. 
You shall therefore keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be called the Lord's. Shall firstborn, uh, every firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time you come to your son and ask you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand and f or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So here, who here among us has gone to a Christian camp at some point in their growing up experience? Put your hand up. I just want to be able to visualize and see. All right. It's a good number of us have done that. Um, they were a lot of fun, weren't they? Uh, a lot of uh, team competitions, perhaps, and at least the camps I went to, cabin challenges, there were chapel messages, um, there was swimming, there was crafts, there was games. Um, but the camps that I used to go to kind of had a distinctive rhythm to them. Um, you kind of knew that by the, the end of the week, there was going to be like a campfire service. Usually by the end, maybe Thursday or, or Friday evening, there was a bonfire. And coming to that, everyone was like given a stick. And, uh, and you were kind of encouraged that if God had been moving in your heart during that week of camp, maybe you heard a message that you were challenged to, to kind of consecrate yourself to the Lord, to, to kind of further refine um, and, and allow the Word of God and the Spirit to work within your hearts, you were instructed to, if that was true of you, at some point, toss that stick into the fire as a symbol, a symbol that you, like that stick, were having something burnt off, that you were becoming more, you were being refined, you were being consecrated through that process. Maybe there were some songs that we sang, I think one of them that we probably would have sung was, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, and uh, that activity was called consecration. Now, to consecrate is a word that we don't often use today. We tend to only think about that in a, like a religious context, but it does mean to set apart, to devote, to anoint, or even to, to sanctify, to make separate. And uh, for example, when I was um, in my early 30s, I was at another church family before I came here, and that church set me apart for the purpose of gospel ministry. I was ordained. I was consecrated for this purpose. Uh, there are several words, as I, as I mentioned, that, that kind of characterize this concept, but I think that it's really helpful for us as followers of Jesus to recognize 
that when you become a Christian, you are already being set apart from the world and being placed into the family of God. You are being consecrated. Uh, in a Jewish context, uh, there were rites that were done in order to demonstrate this coming into family, of coming into relationship with God. And it shouldn't surprise us that in a Christian context, we also have some similar borrowed concepts that demonstrate that we also are being consecrated, that we are being devoted to the Lord. There's a set-apartedness of our new nature as Christians. And consecration is actually a part of all of our callings. I think it's common for us to think that, well, you know, you serve as a pastor, or you serve as a deacon, or you serve as an elder, and these are not the only ones who have had callings. Indeed, everyone who has been called to be a Christian also has been called to set themselves apart to the Lord and be consecrated to Christ. Uh, yesterday, uh, I was involved with some uh, moving of firewood, and it nearly broke me. We moved two or three cords of wood, and, and I we were helping Gavin uh, Blake get some wood for his house, and I said to him, man, if I get pneumonia in this rain and I can't be up here, you're going to have to preach. And he said, well, actually, I could, I could pull up my old camp, my youth message on Romans chapter 12. And I said, perfect. It's about consecration. It would fit right into what we were planning this morning. You see, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, many of us as Christians have heard this time and time again that Paul appeals to us on the basis that we are now saved creatures by God's mercy, that we would present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service. That's what we're all called to do, to consecrate our hearts and lives wholly to Him. And so the message that I'm going to bring from this text this morning is that all Christians are called to become increasingly consecrated to Christ. All Christians are called to become increasingly consecrated to Christ. Consecration is not just a formal external service, it is a disposition of the heart to take the next step, to be wholly focused, to be wholeheartedly focused on following Christ. It's an attitude, for example, of a child to their parent who says, yes, what's next? What do you want me to do? Father, not my will be done, but yours. And so we're going to look at three rituals that have taken on a deeper meaning for Christians because Christ has come. And each have been reframed by the resurrection. And each of these rituals are here to call us to be wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. We don't do all the particular elements, but there are some aspects that carry into our following of Christ that I want us to look at. And in verse uh, chapter 12, verse 43 to 51, I, we see a 
consecration that occurs around new births, in which babies being born, there is some new uh, consecration that takes place. But it happens within a context of a dinner conversation and understanding the ritual of Passover. So there's a little blend here of requirement of circumcision to participate. So we're going to look at the symbols that are in this text. And uh, first, we're going to look at the symbolism of the bone and of the house. Now, the Bible is a normal literary, it's a normal literary written uh, genre. It's, it's something that we read and we have to recognize that there are things that when we read it, they're normal devices that are used, like symbols. But every symbol is not like figurative, like it can mean anything that anyone wants it to mean. It actually connects to literal truth. But symbols are teaching tools. And so I think it's helpful for us to ask ourselves, how do we know when something is going to be used as a symbol? Well, when you're reading along and you've come across one of these, one of the things that you're going to instantly see is that there's not really a lot of detail given initially about the symbol. It's implied. But usually within symbols, there is typically an eventual explanation a little bit later. Maybe not, maybe in the book that you're reading, it might even pop up later in the New Testament. But usually there's, a, there's an explanation that's given. And thirdly, there is a typically a meaning for the people who are participating with the symbol as well as a broader meaning that is available for Christians about Christ, about his church, and about his eventual kingdom that comes. So, for example, and look at verse 46 in chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 46, we see this. Um, It, uh, that is, it is the lamb, shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Now, in the local context, this is a reminder that the meal had to be eaten in haste. Uh, It was roasted whole. You didn't have time to prepare it properly. Maybe you would have pre-gutted it, entrails taken out. It would have been put on a a skewer maybe, or maybe it had been quartered, but this was roasted whole, and it was put on a, on a spit and turned and roasted whole, and the meat was not to be removed from the house. That's the local context. It was because it was a symbol that they, they didn't have time to prepare it properly. But there is a broader explanation that's given to us at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, who was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The soldiers came around to break the legs of the prisoners that were hanging on those crosses. The victims would be broken, and their legs broken, and they would very quickly die of suffocation. John says in his gospel that this was fulfilled to fulfill the symbol of the unbroken bones of the Lamb. So there's explanation that's given about the symbol 
And the symbols that occur in the Old Testament occasionally have continuity in some areas, and sometimes they have some discontinuity as well. This symbol has a continuity of meaning to us today, even though Christ is no longer being re-sacrificed. We see him as the unbroken one who allowed himself to have his body broken for us, in a sense, although his bones were unbroken. It kind of, kind of encapsulates those ideas for us. Now, in the same verse, we have another symbol that's presented to us, and that is uh, that the meat was supposed to be eaten in one house. It wasn't supposed to be carried and shared house to house. It was supposed to be kept isolated there, and it talks about the exclusivity of the Passover meal. It was inside the house. It was not outside the house, and that is a clear symbol of exclusivity. Now, the exclusivity element gets even more attention as you read this because all of a sudden, um, everyone in the house is required not just to be in the house, but you also have to be circumcised. Otherwise, you weren't allowed to participate. Now, why would that be? Let's take a look at the symbol of the circumcision. Verse 43 to 45, you see these elements described. And circumcision is a threefold symbol. It symbolized birth of a baby into a covenant family of Israel. Circumcision, we read about it in more detail in other places, occurred a week after a baby was born. Um, it was a process of consecration. It was a setting apart of this baby. This baby was going to be a part of a Jewish family, not and a covenant follower after the order of Abraham. And the parent and the child were demonstrating by this ritual that they would be willing to raise this child to be faithful to the Lord's covenant. And it was exclusive, because a parent who refused to do this was to be put out of Israel as if they were an unbeliever. They were required to do this. Now, that's quite exclusive, but it did not prevent some inclusivity, because you read in verse 48. Let's look at verse 48. Um, we see here in verse 48, I got to get larger print here. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. And there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. That was some measure of inclusivity, right? But stop and think about it. Circumcision is quite a threshold for someone to participate. I mean, flint, you gotta get a flint knife. There's gonna be blood. There's going to be exquisite pain. Exquisite pain. Think about how many Gentiles would be willing to trade a foreskin for unleavened bread. 
doesn't seem to make sense. But there is something that carries over here that I think that's helpful for us to recognize, that there is a continuity to this even today, even though this exact element is no longer repeated. It's been reframed. A lot like the Jewish Sabbath has been reframed. There is still a literal aspect that continues on. And the symbol of the covenant has changed. Circumcision is no longer the sign of the new covenant. The sign of the new covenant is baptism. And Passover has changed and been reframed to the Lord's table. And so I think it's helpful for us to recognize that there is a continuity here for us as Christians today, that the symbolism of new birth continues to, into today. Today, we don't make a mark on the flesh. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit that makes a mark upon our hearts. But this is not something that we hide under a bushel. No, this is something that we publicly declare. We publicly declare to others that we belong to a community of faith followers who have consecrated themselves unto the Lord. Now, a public assembly may feel like a place of belonging for people, and we really try hard to make sure that everyone feels very welcome when they come. I mean, we do outreaches in the community. We want to get to know the community. We want them to feel connected to the body here in some way to help. Perhaps maybe they would come to faith in Jesus. But baptism is actually one of those signs that is also exclusive as well as inclusive. Baptism is one of those signs of belonging and really shouldn't be something that's delayed forever. Like a baby who was born and then circumcised a week later, it's important for someone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ to immediately sense that they need to identify with the body of Christ and allow themselves to be publicly baptized as a sign that they are believing in the new covenant promises made by Jesus Christ. See, baptism is a sign of belonging because there is new life that is inside the person. See, like circumcision, as I said, it's not something we put off indefinitely, and baptism is certainly an awkward public experience. I get it. It's awkward to be in front of a community and allow yourself to be soaking wet, gasping, coming up for air. But that's a symbol of new life. You're coming up out of the water like a newborn baby. You're showing everyone else that you are part of this community. Uh, I was uh, studying this week, and I came across uh, a Jewish commentator, a Jewish commentator on baptism. He says that every sect which seeks to establish a sense of community must be exclusive. Someone who was not baptized could not have participated in the Christian communion either. Isn't that interesting? 
that a Jewish observer of Christianity would make this conclusion. In fact, this Jewish author is writing and recognizing that the very early church limited the Lord's table to those who had been baptized. In the second and third centuries, the deacons would actually guard the door, and that those who had not been baptized were instructed to leave the service. Now, we don't do that here. That's not something that we do. I think that in time, the early church suffered unnecessary persecution through misunderstanding. They created an environment of such secrecy that they became suspicious, the, the, the world became suspicious of them and started to persecute them perhaps unnecessarily. And so a lot of the early church began to shift to make it allowed to be more public, accessible, viewable, so that people wouldn't misunderstand and make the claim that they were cannibals eating the body of Christ in secret. They didn't want that to happen. But one of the reasons I think that I've recommended that people voluntarily sort themselves after worship service is that really the table is really for those who have been born again, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But I want you to think about it. Baptism is a sign of inclusion. It communicates that you have been born again. And this in itself is very inclusive. It's accessible. Every tribe, nation, and tongue, slave or free person is permitted. And we demonstrate through our union together that out of many, we become one. And once you belong, you have all the rights that everyone else has. Now, the Lord's Passover meal, as I said, is now the Lord's table. And we remember that when His blood was applied to the cross for the remission of our own sins, we become born again. We become filled with the Holy Spirit, and new life fills us. Circumcision is now believer baptism. And so it's healthy. I, I, I want you to get the wrong impression, because it's healthy for a congregation who assembles on a Sunday morning to be a mixture of people who are members and those who are not. Because when the Word of God is taught, there's always going to be a mixture of responses. Some people will hear with hearing and faith, and there will be others who won't, but maybe they will at another moment. And so it's important for us to recognize that there are stages of response. And if you're here and you've not been baptized, maybe this would prompt you to really consider is it now time for me to publicly declare to everyone that I worship with that I belong to Christ? That would be a natural next step. Uh, perhaps you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, I gave an invitation at the end of a service and invited those who were listening to make a response and then come tell me afterwards and by God's grace, there was someone who came to me after the service to tell me that, that they had put their faith and trust in Christ. That's the next step. And so as I teach, need to be thinking, how can I be more increasingly consecrated to Christ? What is my next step? And the next step may be that you need to communicate that you are a follower of Jesus Christ 
to the broader congregation. See, all Christians are called to become increasingly consecrated to Christ. Now, we move into the next chapter, Exodus 13, and we come across two additional rites. And I spent a lot of time in the first point explaining the symbols. In these two rites, the symbols are fairly well explained by Moses in context. And I don't think I have to spend as much time I can think more in the application. And so I want us to understand here that, that consecration by these two rituals becomes a significant part of Jewish life, but it communicates that consecration is to be a way of life. It's not something that we do once and we forget about it, but it's something that we do continually throughout our lifetime. And so number two, I want us to think about how the firstborn dedication would communicate family consecration and the importance of how to think about the children that we have been given as parents. Uh, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 13, there's this, this uh, short introduction by Moses. He says, And the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of men and of beast, it is mine. And then in verse 30, Moses turns to the people and starts to teach them about the significance of everything that they just went through and the significance of needing to eat unleavened bread. But then in, in verse, um, verse 11, he comes back to this point of consecration. And he talks about the significance of family consecration and how we ought to be thinking about our children. And dwelling and building upon that point where, where Christ says the firstborn are mine. Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell in them. Now, we know this to be true. This is something that's not unfamiliar to a lot of us. It stands to reason, but I think that we can forget that the Lord owns everything and also our responsibilities of children. The Lord wants us to remember that our children belong to the Lord first. Notice uh, it's, it's, it is significant that we remember, and when we go into the land of Canaan, when, when Israel goes into the land of Canaan, there will be things that will cause them to forget, but yet they are to remember first and foremost, that children are a heritage of the Lord. They are very significant stewardship. Israel was called to consecrate their firstborn to the Lord, even livestock. Now, as I said, the symbolism is pretty easy to follow the concept of redemption. God's grace towards Israel was costly. It was costly because in Egypt's judgment, there was their salvation. Now, to be fair and equitable to the Egyptians for their heavy loss, God took ownership of Israel's firstborn and required a fee of redemption to get them back. Now, it was still grace, and I, I think that we could be confused looking at this and think, well, are they paying for their, are they paying for their salvation? What is going on here? 
But this is still grace because the returns are simply a portion of what God had, give, had, had given them. They had been giving them total freedom, so this was more like an offering. Now, I read in verse 13 about a lamb being given for a donkey. Which is the greater, what is the greater thing? The donkey is greater. So, giving a lamb, which is more, less significant, is only a portion. This is still grace. There is an expectation that there would be a return of gratitude for what God had done, but it is completely still grace. Um, I didn't read here about giving what, what would be given for a son. I don't have time for that this morning, but in Numbers 3, there is five shekels that are determined for giving to the temple treasury to redeem a child. Five shekels. That's like 20 bucks. What is the price of a child? It's infinite. But it was just a little bit to, to demonstrate that, that God, in His mercy, in His grace, had given so much. To give back in gratitude a little bit was an expression of love from the heart. And this was designed to teach. Now, you could imagine what might have occurred, for example, when a child saw a lamb being sacrificed for a donkey and, and asking questions like, Dad, what does, what does this gift of a lamb and silver to the temple mean? Well, son, it tells me that the cost of our redemption was greater. It was greater than we could ever pay. And now I sacrifice these things gladly because God has paid the greatest price. Son, there's one more thing. It also tells me that you are on loan to me as your father. It tells me that I'm called to lead you into a life of consecration. And you know what? I can't lead you if I'm not consecrated myself. See, my life, my, my wealth, they're all gifts from God. And I give gladly to Him. I give gladly to the synagogue because when I assemble with the Lord and His people, I, I give out of the praise of my heart for all that He has done. This is to teach us as parents that everything that we do is a teaching moment. How we choose to spend our money and how we choose to use our time through all of these things, we are teaching our children to whom we have consecrated our hearts. Who or what do we love the most? Do we love Christ? Because He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do we love Him in return for His great gift that He has given to us? And so, family consecration, parents also have to be consecrated themselves. But this is continual. This is not just a ritual that occurs once and we forget about it. It's something that we come back to. And so, there's a continuous uh, consecration that occurs, and it also is an example of how to teach our children. Uh, chapter 13, verse 3, um, we see this again. He's unleavened bread didn't we hear about this like two weeks ago? Do we have to hear it again? 
how often we forget. How often we forget. Moses circles back to the Feast of Unleavened Bread again to talk about just how important it is to be continually consecrating ourselves to the Lord. Look at verse 3. It says, remember this day. Remember this day. What is your favorite day? What is a day that means so much to you? I think if we did a survey, I'm positive most of us would say it was Christmas, right? There's a lot of family memories that occur around Christmas. Now, I know there's some that will say, no, it's Thanksgiving. Both of those days are tremendous memory-making moments. And continual remembrance occurs and creates cultural narratives that stick. I mean, we have rituals that occur every November, like the last Thursday of November creates for us a cultural narrative. We all instinctively know what to do. Well, for many of us, we go out on, good, on that Friday, not Good Friday, it's Black Friday. We go out on that Friday and we get a tree. It's like expectation. We do this every year. We don't even have to ask anything about it. Bing Crosby is allowed to be played without apology. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing, and hearts will be glowing. It's a cultural narrative. It's because we do it every year. How do Christians create cultural narratives? Moses warned the people, he said in verse 5, you're going to be going into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And the bounty and the wealth of that land would be such a distraction that it had the potential to break down their resolve towards continuous consecration. And we are living in a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And we face a litany of distractions. There are so many sweets that can cause us to say, following Christ is a drag. And your son says, why are we eating unyeasted bread? I'd rather be, what will you say? Is it because of what the Lord has done that we set aside all the cares of life and go and worship with the Lord and his people? See, the Lord is coming again, son, and I don't want to get distracted with my boat. I don't want to get distracted with my properties. I don't want to get distracted with my vacations, my guns. No, I need to stay focused upon the Lord. All this milk and all this honey that we have is a gift from God, but I don't want to, the Lord to think that I love them more than Him. No, son. Put your shoes next to the door because tomorrow we're going to church. See, to set apart as holy is to create a cultural narrative that you can pass on to your children. See, we're always teaching our children by what we do. But what about hypocrisy? Yes, when I was a child, 
There were hypocrites who went to church every week. But don't let their hypocrisy prevent you from forming healthy culture for your children. See, when Joshua had led Israel into that land flowing with milk and honey, he warned them of the dangers of the wealth. And he challenged them to fear the Lord and to serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. And do you remember his resolve? He resolved, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He said to Israel, strive for sincerity and faithfulness. Faithfulness without sincerity is legalism. But sincerity without any faithfulness is license. We need them both. We can't say, I will only go to church when I'm in the mood. We need them both. We need them as guardrails to guard our hearts. And so I want to encourage you, as we strive for faithfulness, that we not neglect the importance of sincerity and confessing sin that comes within us that gives us bad attitudes towards faithfulness. The problem is not the faithfulness. The problem is the heart. And when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and he fills our hearts with the joy of going and being faithful. And so I want to challenge us as Christians as we hear and we reflect upon these ancient symbols that we don't realize or that we realize that they continue although modified in a different way and all christians are called to become increasingly consecrated to christ and so i want us to ask what is our next step is it that we have some unconfessed sin that keeps us from desiring to be baptized Maybe we have nothing in our heads and we just don't know why we haven't been baptized. Well, maybe your next step is to be baptized. Is it maybe that I become a more meaningful member? That I get invested in the life of my congregation? Is it taking the time to understand the motives, removing the love for the sweets that are in the world? I can't get in your head but I don't have to because the Holy Spirit can tell you what you need to do. And I encourage you to listen and respond. Let's pray.